0: What do Crimea and the chip shortage have in common? They both point to arming Taiwan. I'm Monica Perez, and this is today's Deep Dive. If you want to hear this Deep Dive commercial free, there are two ways to do it. You can go to the free podcasting feed uh, that I do, it's me and all my stuff and only my stuff Deep Dives with Monica Perez on your favorite podcasting platform. But if you are a member at Rockfin, rockfin.com slash propaganda report, you can get all of that, and you can get any videos I do. I will post them there, usually in real time. And Binkley does all his stuff there too, commercial-free, and his live stream's there. So that's a great deal. And you get all the stuff from all the other creators. I mean, it's such a robust platform. I love it. And I am actually going to try to do a live stream there as many Wednesdays I can. I try to do it Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific. That's 2 p.m. Eastern. Not a great time for everybody, but it's right in the middle of the week. When you're hearing this, if you're listening to this as soon as it drops, it'll be today live with John Bush of the Freedom Cells. He is going to be my guest. You can watch it there on Rockfin rockfin.com slash propaganda report. You can watch it on YouTube. That one's going to be on YouTube. And then on Friday, which is October 14th, 2022, I'm doing my part two with Ian Davis about the multipolar world. And that's also going to be at 11 o'clock, 11 a.m. Pacific on Friday. There's no way I can put that on YouTube. So I'll have it on Rockfin, and I'll try to put it on Rumble. So I have a channel on Rumble, Monica Perez Show, Hopefully, you can find that stuff there, and I would love to see you at the John Bush live stream where you can ask questions and help me get to tease out what's really going on with the freedom cells. I don't know much about it, and I'm really interested, and if you miss it live, that's okay. It'll be there when you're ready. So let's get onto the diving platform here and take a giant stride into the deep blue sea with this headline, I call it. It looked like an agenda searching for a headline. See why this is the story. Not only did I choose to do this story for today's show, I just, the entire article just got my, (laughs) triggered me as it were, left and right. So I'm going to go through the entire article. It's called China's Threat to Taiwan Semiconductors. Why aren't American asset managers paying attention to the risks from an invasion of the island? So super scary right off the bat. And what was weird, though, is that I saw this crazy article on my feed online, Wall Street Journal, just like on my phone. And when I went to get the newspaper today, I looked for that article. It's like on the very last page. It's just an op-ed piece. It's only half a page. It should not have had like 20 different things. Like, what, what, what? But in that newspaper, this newspaper are four other articles on Chinese semiconductors. There were five articles on Chinese semiconductors in this one newspaper alone. And of course, you know me, I'm like, what is going on? So there was some legislation, or I should say like a Commerce Department ruling that came down on Friday that's making a lot of waves. There were some reactions in the stock market. I'm going to get to the bottom of that. And then, um, but I think after I went through all these articles, I went back online, I pulled all the threads, clicked on the links, watched videos they had embedded, and I think the big picture here is even bigger than possibly provoking China into a war. And I know that's a lot. Normally I put the punchline up front, but I'm going to I'm going to leave that there as a tease for y'all <laughs> to get to the end of the show. So Let's dig into it. So this article was by Vivek Ramaswamy, who I don't know if he's supposedly like the next Dinesh D'Souza or what I would characterize him. He was a Harvard biology major. He got a law degree from Yale, which is a very hard law school to get into. Very small, very, I don't know, deep state, maybe. I'm not sure. But in my opinion, he is at least the latest his latest incarnation is he's an anti-woke Role player. That's what he's taking this conservative mantle on. But he happened to just start a semiconductor ETF. So that's a like an exchange traded fund. So he's got skin in this game, and the article was co-written by Mike Pompeo. Which, when you see the, his bio there, like he was the head of the CIA, and then he was the Secretary of State, and you're like, you know, <laughs> one should not follow the other, but of course it does. It's perfect. <laughs> so I, I'm not. What you see is not what you get with these guys, no doubt. And um, but still, like, why am I interested in this? this issue. I did a deep dive on it already. And why would I keep coming back to this issue? And and the thing that has been bothering me about this is there's all this, I, I probably have to do a Ukraine update real soon, but there's just all this um, escalation in Ukraine. They blew up a bridge from the mainland to Crimea. and uh, And when they compare Taiwan with Crimea, And in this article, it leads off with, the first paragraph says, like, if China annexes Taiwan. And we know that the word annex has probably been used in the Wall Street Journal 99% in the past, whatever, years, eight years to refer to what happened in Crimea. Now, what happened in Crimea was, they had a nearly unanimous vote cast by almost everyone who was um, eligible to vote in Crimea, to join Russia and leave Ukraine. And that was completely reasonable. That's where the Russian Black Sea Fleet is. It's like San Diego and the U.S. Navy. That's what it's like there. But mostly, I think why they absolutely did it nearly unanimously is that Russian is their first language. And the first thing the post-coup government, the government that we installed after conducting a coup in 2014, first thing they did was ban the Russian language for any official purpose. So that's why these... Places all want to leave because they don't speak the language of their country. How could they even be informed voters if they if their first language is Russian? So, of course, they're going to go there. But that also implies why would the Ukraine government do that? If they did a coup and they want stability in the country, why do that extremely provocative thing? And I, and I have to say, of all things that would make me think that we provoked the Russian invasion on purpose, provoked the... Um, the referendum in Crimea to go Russia's way, it would be that language law. So when people say, oh, well, maybe China will will annex Taiwan the way Russia annexed Crimea, I go one step further and think, well, maybe we'll provoke China the way we provoked Russia. And that makes me nervous. I mean, we do not want a war. And a lot of these people do want war. I mean, that's what's hard to understand. Our interests are completely not aligned with these people. So when you, in in one of the articles that was embedded, one of the videos that was embedded in these Wall Street Journal articles, there was one of the people they were uh, interviewing was a guy named Timothy Heath, I think. He was from the Rand Corporation, and the Rand Corporation is a supposedly what they described it in the article was a non-profit think tank that gives research to the Pentagon. It's like, well, it was founded by the defense industry and no doubt is still funded by it. It's funded by the US Army. I mean, it may not be profitable, but it has to get funding from somewhere. Those are the people who are controlling the output and it's all about arms. And throughout this material that I was reading and this is for a while what I thought the real underlying issue was, you have people from The Rand guy from the Wall Street Journal, from, um, I guess, Kevin McCarthy, a congressman from California, all saying, you know, what we need to do is get arms over to Taiwan. They want to buy weapons from us. Biden needs to allow that. And I guess Biden's a little schizophrenic on this issue. I know that he has deep financial investments in China. Last I read, and I never read that they were severed, even though Hunter stepped down from The administration or that board, I never heard that they divested themselves of those interests. So he definitely is got some one foot in the door over there, kind of like the way they said Trump had investments in Russia, but he really didn't. (laughs) I mean, he really did not. Biden really does. So I don't know how he's getting away with talking out of both sides of his mouth. I mean, it's possible China wants a war, too. It's possible that we'll provoke an invasion of China and they'll win. You know, they'll get it. And they'll, and that way we feel like, oh, well, we tried. Do you want World War III? Uh, we just have to give Taiwan to China. But so that's what worries me about all this, why I follow this story. And I think a lot of people are interested in that because that's that seems to be the hot zone. Uh, so they talk about what would happen if, he, uh, if China annexed Taiwan. And what they say is that it creates risks for U.S. investors. And that that and that's leads to the headline asset managers need to care. And the purpose of that, in my opinion, is to do two things. One is it's to give, it's either to pressure companies into behaving this way or to give cover to companies for behaving this way. That they so there's a semiconductor chip surplus right now, seems like. And in, in one of the other articles in the journal yesterday was. It said, fall in PC shipments is steepest in 20 years. And it says that the PC demand fell off 17% from last year, and high inventory is a major concern for chip manufacturers uh, and the PC companies. So in that article, in this journal, it said, Advanced Micro Devices cuts its quarterly revenue forecast, citing weaker-than-expected demand for the PCs that use its chips. So they're not going to invest in more chip manufacturing if they don't think it's needed. And we're not going to be panicked about an interruption in chips if we have more than we need. Now, that story was pretty well buried, and it also appeared in the same section of the newspaper, the investor section, as another article that, I found to be totally misleading in light of that statement by Advanced Micro Devices about the inventory surplus. There was an article nearby that said stocks fall as Nasdaq hits lowest level since July 2020 and it opens with chip makers led the losses with 5 and 6% declines in market value because of Biden's new restrictions on exports. So th- what I was saying is or it's the commerce department did some restrictions on chip exports and a lot of other things. We're going to get into it on Friday. And these guys are saying in the one article that, Oh, it's all about that. That's what's happening. It's really affecting their prospects and all that. Whereas like nearby, it says that they have actually a surplus. So I feel like a lot of what's happening here in this story is they are trying to, uh, shape the behavior of asset managers. And by the end of the article, they get to hitting BlackRock directly. BlackRock is one of them, but they are also, I don't know how they're playing the chip manufacturers, but the chip manufacturers are seeming to balk at these export restrictions. It is really hurting them, but in the very long run, perhaps they know that they aren't going to be able to compete if China really enters this market Robustly, and maybe they're on board with creating kind of two zones. I remember we talked recently about Comic-Con, I think it's called, where it was this economic um, block for communist countries to trade with each other and exclude countries that weren't in the communist block. And it's possible that we've gotten our, our manufacturers to get on board with that kind of an arrangement. And some of these, this Commerce Department export restrictions include threatening countries that don't abide by these limitations by putting them on what's called an entity list. And it it kind of harkens back to what I think Janet Yellen was saying about some of the Russian sanctions, that we want all the countries to get on board with these Russian sanctions because we want to start this kind of a block. We need to isolate the Russia-China alliance. At the time, she was just talking about Russia, but it looks like they may be using the same kind of tactics here with China. So on the one hand, they are trying to use these, these restrictions, which basically say that especially with respect to advanced semiconductor chips— You can't invest, U.S. can't invest in the Chinese ones. China can't invest in ours. You can't um, export these chips to China. You can't export the manufacturing equipment to China. Other countries who use U.S. technology, they have to abide by these rules as if it were U.S. products or get on this entity list. You can't have people who have the talent can't go work for Chinese companies. I mean, it's really draconian. So that is that is having a, a real impact, and that in itself is creating problems for our companies. Yet, what they're saying is what the argument in this article and the government and everything is saying is that we're only doing all this stuff because there's a real risk, there's an imminent threat of this kind of invasion or. Um, in the long run of China using the, as this accelerating their military capabilities, their surveillance capabilities. So in all of these cases, whether it's American interests abroad um, or military advancement or the human rights violations, they keep trying to argue that these are legitimate defensive measures or humanitarian measures. So they appeal to the right by saying their military is going to accelerate and we're super scared of them or, uh, our economic interests are like an extension of our property rights outside our borders, which to me is not valid, but that's what we say. And I think that appeals to the right. And then the humanitarian stuff is like their, their argument for the left that the, the surveillance is used to oppress minorities and uh, Muslims and stuff. So, They always try to couch their agendas in terms that we can accept morally because they are really an extension of our authority. But that's definitely not what's at play. So at first what I thought was at play was that they simply wanted to facilitate weapons sales to Taiwan, as simple as the military-industrial complex. And I think that's definitely part of it. They are notorious for multitasking. That was in the report from Iron Mountain, and so is some other stuff in here. So – and then when they try to explain, they try to validate the risk. Like, why would China do that? Why Why is this not simply a provocation to make China do that? Why would China do it without being provoked? You know, they always say that. There's like, Putin's just crazy. He just wants to expand. He's just got, he's a megalomaniac. He wants to be another czar. They say the same thing about Xi. They're like, his, and it may be true. It may be true. Like, I, it's a culture so foreign to me that I just don't understand exactly how it works and he wants to establish this personal legacy. But here's the thing. No matter what his motives are, and even if he thinks that he is driving this ship and and he thinks that this is important for his legacy, the the guy whose face you see, his whims, his ego, his personal impulses do not drive geopolitics at this level. I mean, that's just... To think that this guy emerged and took over the machine that is China, and and that just happened, and now he's in control of it—it's as ridiculous as thinking that that happens with our presidents. This this these are multi-generational, intergenerational apparatuses with a deep state that transcends all elections and face and front-facing people. So it's not that there are other factors at play here. Uh, so. So they get into that. They're, they're, like, saying, like, you know, there is this idea of a silicon shield that because China depends on Taiwan for these semiconductors, they would never invade Taiwan. That's what Taiwan thinks is their shield. But we just—we're pulling that away. We I, I When I did the, my first show on the semiconductor stuff, which is so weird because I'm not a specialist at all, but I'm just trying to understand the policy— and when Nancy Pelosi went over there, it was right after we passed the Chips and Science Act, which had this, it seems like a pittance compared to what we're, the money we're talking about, but whatever, it seems to be driving something, that there's $50 billion on the table for these semiconductor companies to partner with us or to build here, and the caveat is they cannot build these super high-end, advanced chips in China. And the fact that they can't build those chips in China You know, I don't know if they want to or not. It seems to me that the roots of the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company is in, like, MIT. So I feel like they'll do whatever we say. That's how it was set up. And that they, too, need face-saving. Like, all these arguments seem like they are meant to get us to understand the machinations of this stuff, make it look like they're writing a script of how World War III was started, when really it's more like the book... Secret origins of World War One, where these power players are behind the scenes trying to create conflict because what they want is a war. Now, I'm not sure they want a hot war. I'm not sure what they want exactly, but it it what you see is not what you get here and the arguments that they're making. Because if there is a silicon shield and we're we're disconnecting the Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing company from China, that shield goes away. And that was the whole argument that Nixon used for opening up China. Like, get them invested in the West and they won't be hostile to us. Get them a little bit pregnant, you know, with Western commerce or something and they'll stop being communist. So it's a stupid argument that I don't believe. So what what do I think? Part of what I think is that this is a very long-term, or I should say at least a a few-year-long psychological operation because they keep pointing to the chip shortage that we experienced during lockdown as demonstrating our vulnerability to the supply chain. You've heard that, I'm sure, a thousand times. While the supply chain thing was happening, that's when I I coined the hashtag another perfect storm because this stuff was just it was just not believable that all these things were coming together. And some of the pieces of those puzzles were generated out of China. Those ever, ever—I ever clear ships, Evergreen, I don't know. I mean, those were Chinese ships. Like maybe they were scuttled by us. But I think, I mean, looking at how they're conducting the lockdown shoulder to shoulder with us, I can't help but think that there must be some, I mean, we saw the collusion at Event 201. But what they do is I think they generate these... And this was in Event 201 also. Like we want... This is one of the seven calls to action that's published on the Johns Hopkins website coming out of Event 201, which predicted and I would say planned the COVID thing. So what they said in there was, we want business to feel the pain so that they lobby government to spend money in these ways, to conduct policy in these ways so they themselves put their money into these kind of precautionary investments. So I, during when, when these supply chain things were rolling out, I was like, I don't know what their point is here, but this is clearly being manufactured. And now I would say it was manufactured so that we would see how vulnerable we are to this and it would justify us taking action as if we're at risk of attack. They always put it in kind of war terms, and they they conflate economy with war, with military, with with defense. And, and you know what? That is how I feel about the railroad workers' strike. I did a deep dive on that, too, and it looked like it was resolved. And I said, like, I'm not, I'm not counting this as resolved until it is because – I think they would use the railroad worker strike. They may try to make very generous terms and still have it not resolve the labor issue and use that as the way to demonstrate that we are uniquely vulnerable to uh, railroad labor disputes and they can't be reasonable. And so we need to invest in mechanizing, you know, or, or invest in tech that will eliminate some of these workers and I actually got an email from a railroad worker who said they've been trying for a long time to cut that engine crew from one to from two to one. I didn't even know that. So I just heard that the railroad workers one of the unions did not approve what looked like a totally fine deal. And I'm afraid that they're going to demonstrate our vulnerability like they're demonstrating the vulnerability of Europe to Russian gas. They really had to bring it to the absolute limits for that to happen. But they finally got Germany to walk away from the Nord Stream pipeline. I guess that wasn't enough because then they had to blow it up. But that just that chip shortage gave the U.S. companies, the U.S. government, cover an excuse for making policy decisions, investment decisions that would not be justified under circumstances that weren't manipulated. And some of the other stuff that they're trying to fold in to this kind of stakeholder capitalism thing, you've heard it, but it was mentioned in some of these articles, like they need to think of the invasion of Taiwan and supply chain issues the way that they are thinking about climate change and diversity. So climate change and diversity are considered, or being pressured to be considered, big risks to asset managers and CEOs. They're really trying hard to incorporate these like non-financial factors. And that's why you see sustainability prices and stuff popping up on the air, airfares and all that. They, they're trying to couch it in this. And of course, when you look at it this way, I mean, anything can be a risk. Anything can be a risk. And it's weighing the risk, and the risk gets heavily weighted when it's being manipulated from on high, when you do make policies that provoke this, when policies that interrupt the supply chain, policies that punish, you know, not insufficient diversity hiring or not the right way. These are, they are manufacturing risk. And another thing that they mentioned specifically about that right up front in this article was shareholders will be able to sue you if you were on notice for this risk, and we're putting you on notice right now, basically, and you didn't take precautions. So all of these things give these CEOs justification if they're looking for it or real cause to change their behavior. And by the end of it, they are calling out BlackRock by name for having a double standard, favoring China, wanting very much to be the number one asset manager or the number one foreign asset manager in China, trying to, um, I think, BlackRock might have been the first one to get approval in China to go start financial operations there. And at the same time, they're very lenient with China on climate change stuff, but very harsh with Intel on climate change stuff. Intel's a chip manufacturer. So they're really hitting BlackRock on this. And I've seen other articles in the Wall Street Journal that are starting to criticize BlackRock. You've probably seen some like backlash against that, wondering, what, what is this? Like, somebody speaking out against ESG in the mainstream. I feel like this is where the conflict is. They want BlackRock to heal when it comes to whatever they're up to with Taiwan and China, maybe specifically about the semiconductor chips above all else. So then there were a couple more articles the one was titled, U.S. Curbs Threaten China's Rising Chip Makers. And that's about the Commerce Department rules that greatly strengthen some rules that kind of already existed. The rules that existed previously were restrictions on certain things. This is saying that you cannot do some of these things. You cannot export chips and chip-making equipment without a license So you have to have a license to engage in that trade with China right now. And the article mentions smartphones, personal computers, data servers, and, quote, other everyday devices. But there was a video embedded in, I think, that article, if not uh, the next one, the next one says, U.S. gets tough on China's chip sector. It's probably a very similar article. But it embed this thing that was all about, there were two videos embedded. One was all about supercomputers, and the other was all about drone swarms. (laughs) So which is the real one, and which is the, you know, where's the Easter egg? And the drone swarm one was really scary. And it was like, these advanced chips are necessary to coordinate the drone swarms, and we need to slow down the military. So that article, U.S. Gets Tough on China's Chip Sector, was about you slowing down the military, and, um, and it pointed out that the Chinese can't—not only are these new commerce laws in place, but there are also laws in place that—so we can't invest in Chinese companies, as I mentioned earlier, can't send talent over there, or can't export, our allies can't export, but— Chinese, this is a separate thing, they can't invest in certain of our tech sectors. And there's an actual, I call it the House on american Activities Committee. I think Chuck Schumer runs it. It's called CFIUS. I think it's the Congressional Committee on Foreign Investment in U.S. Companies. And they said they have to assess whether China's investment in the U.S. tech sector is going to uh, make the supply chain vulnerable, would threaten U.S. tech dominance in that sector, and if it would make uh, allow for personal data collection, and and that would be vulnerable to Chinese hacking, so those are the criteria they're using for for that. But the thing that was the big new event was this Commerce Department stuff, where where we can't push stuff out to them. So the thing about the drones that was. Pretty scary because they said that what happens is they'll send the drone swarm over to take out a missile defense system by drawing all the missiles out. So they're big and and it's a, like a it's like a bee swarm. So if one one drone like a bee gets taken out, the other drones keep doing their job. Maybe a new one comes up. Maybe they they re-coordinate whatever. But they can take all the missiles out and then maybe they're. Their bombs come through, or the ne- next drone swarm actually has missiles on it, and they can drop that. Like that was a big thing; it was a very scary video. But I was much more scared. This is what I think the punchline was: by the other video, the other video showed, and I put all the stuff in the show notes. Today's show notes are the those articles are the best that I've ever like most comprehensive ever. So this other article or the other video shows the supercomputers, and it talks about these two supercomputer, uh, I guess, competing supercomputers. One is called Frontier, and that's from the Department of Energy, and the other is called Tianhe-3. That's the Chinese one. And there are these competitions, and they go head-to-head with their supercomputers. I guess China has bigger and more supercomputers. I think it has 176, and the U.S. has 123. But we have but oh, oh and in this competition this year China wouldn't didn't enter and i think that's cuz they don't want us to know where they're at in the development of course i mean that's so and i that was the implication of this article but why do we still have dominance because of these super advanced chips so These supercomputers and anybody who knows about this industry, I'm sure what I'm saying is not a revelation to them. Like I'm telling people who are like me don't know this stuff and are trying to understand why we may or may not be on the brink of World War III and what is really at stake why the five articles were about chinese semiconductors and i think that has not it isn't about the military applications although there's always multitasking at work i think it's about these supercomputers they they were saying that uh, they can they're capable of one quintillion calculations per second that's like a one with 18 zeros and it's 2 billion times the capacity of your laptop and Frankly, I've never had to do anything my laptop couldn't handle, so, ah. So they get into what they do, what they're for. And again, I'm no expert, so I'm sure there's a lot to it, but the guy they were interviewing, the guy who is the expert, the guy who's in Tennessee where this stuff is ground zero, by the way, Oak Ridge, I think it is. So he was talking about how what these supercomputers can do is, is he the way he said it was that they could solve the world's most pressing problems. And as they dug into it, they said they can just run countless simulations. And I immediately flashed to the importance of the scenario analyses, so eventual one was a scenario play that 2010 technology Thing from Rockefeller Foundation had four scenarios. They've got it in down four scenarios. And then the 2017 SPARS document was one of those scenarios. So seven years later, they had it down to one slighter. And then in 2019, they had the actual rollout. And these are all, I think they're all Johns Hopkins involved. Certainly Rockefeller Foundation was in the first one. Johns Hopkins was in the second too. But then I realized like those scenarios. And as we've been talking about COVID and I know they're in lockdown. How can they control it? Maybe that's why they didn't make it so deadly. Like, could they really be so sophisticated that they understood how this would roll out? Like two years hence, they're not that sophisticated, is the idea, right? That's our hope. But this, if they're capable of all those simulations and it just, it simulates out all at once every possible scenario and then as, and it's also surveillance. They talk about this as being a surveillance machine. So it's like the machine of person of interest or the rise of the machines in the Terminator. But let's say it's like the person of interest. A- and it's 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 machine learning and it's self-learning, it's artificial intelligence, it's all of these things. So they set the scenario that they want to look into, the simulations they want to set. And at the same time, these machines are, are collecting data. They're collecting every keystroke that you make, right? So they are... I'm inferring this, but I think it's way. I think this is the upshot that I'm, I came away with. They are looking at in real time. They can put all that data and and tweak those simulations, tweak them and tweak them and tweak them. So if they had that thing during COVID, with every movement, with every newspaper article, with every social reaction, they could revise their simulation. And what happens if you have that kind of power to predict, to really predict? And that's what they said in the report from Iron Mountain in 1963. They said, we can predict how a small change in the draft law can affect real estate prices in lower Manhattan, thanks to computers. That's what they were saying 50, 60 years ago. So can you imagine what they can do now and what they could do then? If you have that power to predict you have power to profit from it to influence it. I mean, you can, you can say it's not, it's not strictly control, but it's tantamount to control because you can get, you can see other people reacting in real time and you can get ahead of that reaction. And because you have all the scenarios laid out, simulation can tell you what to do next, could do it for you. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be scary either. Like I didn't, this this isn't where I started, and this you know this morning I thought I was going to be talking about the Rand Corporation and the defense industries. I looked up where Kevin McCarthy gets his funding. You know, I just like who owns Kevin McCarthy, and I ended up here. So, so I'm wondering if the idea of the of a Chinese war, an invasion of Taiwan, of of any of that, if they want. I mean, obviously, they're trying to get these things built here, these chips made here, and they don't want their chi- those chips made there. I mean, maybe this is like the Manhattan Project. Maybe this is like the World War II race for the bomb. Like, whoever gets it first, they will have the machine, you know? And that they don't even care if there's a World War Three or, or World War Three will just accelerate the process and will just cut China off and get these guys to be able to, to master this because... As I've said before, like it looks to me like the West has finally acknowledged that they can't beat the World Island, the Russia-China continuum, the resources, the human resources of China and the natural resources of Russia. And that's why they can never have Germany be part of that because that has the industrial resources. And obviously everybody's building up industrial resources and people have commodities in other places Um, and human beings are everywhere, but I'm just talking about the sheer power. Can, could the West ultimately dominate that world island, that Eurasian continent? And I concluded, no, they couldn't. However, this may be the way. And this may be, you know, when you're, when I'm asking, like, why does China cooperate in some stuff and not on others? Maybe they're both playing their roles on this level of the chessboard, and I'm not, like, I hate that Q co-opted that. But really, at the top, it is it is East versus West, and it is this race to build the machine. If you've never watched Person of Interest, it's a series that I really liked, even though I knew it was just telling us, you know, <laughs> it was predictive programming. But I liked it. I like Jim Caviezel. So uh, if you don't know what it is, watch it. it the machine can... It, 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 it is connected to like every computer, every camera, every, every microphone in the world, and it can trace. It is what that total information awareness, you can wiki that, was founded to be. It was a, a Bush-era U.S. government project to have 24-7 surveillance of every single person. <laughs> it was called total information awareness. And I feel like this is about who will build the machine first. So I always like to have a takeaway that isn't super scary, even if that, like, conclusion was. But my takeaway is that, yes, this stuff can scare the crap out of you. But the fact that they are actually waging this war right now in plain sight means that the war is not anywhere near over. I mean, they are in the thick of it. And, yes, you can root for us to have it, but if you could go back in time, and hope that nuclear bombs were never invented, and some people think they weren't, some people think that there was just conventional bombs. That the firebombing of Dresden was basically exactly the same as Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I don't know about that. Um, I never went into it. It seems like nuclear power is certainly real. But if you if you could go back in time and just say, you know what, what if you know what if the East and the West or Germany and the U.S. blew up each other's nuclear research facilities and. It set back the development of the bomb enough that we could, as a society, evolve beyond the crisis, move past the crisis. So that, because ultimately, you do need the people's consent. That's why this media is so, um, you know, they carpet bomb us with this propaganda because you need the people's consent. And they like these crises. They're building up China fear. I feel like that's, you know, they build up the China fear for this. Like everybody's. Promoting China fear, and if you if you pull back the curtain on that, you've got you know there's always some military intelligence guy behind that, or you know it's always comes back to that. And yes, that's easy to say it's the Rand Corporation or whatever, but maybe if if this stuff isn't in the bag, we can move past the crisis and and maybe wise up to the machine and withdraw our support. You know, there could be an awakening. There could be, and and I'm not just trying to find the silver lining. I mean, we are at an information flex point where in order for them to have this technology to accelerate the information state for all of that, some of it gets out. There's a lot of limited hangout out there, and the internet, as restricted as it now is, is part of that, our ability to understand things. So many smart people trying to crack the codes here, and they have voices and stuff. It's possible that this is just too big a project, it's going to take too long, and that we we could push past it because it's not done yet. This war is, this war is, they haven't even gotten it started yet. So let's just try to remain vigilant, not panic, and uh, of course see the bright side of life, have your, you know, go walk in, in the grass and bare feet because this is very much a long game and you got to enjoy what you got here i feel like civilization may be just one giant exercise in kicking the can of tyranny and we've done it so far i mean yes the the tech is is moving pretty quickly but can't lose hope and i don't lose hope and i do try to enjoy and if you enjoyed this podcast Please share it on social media or with someone you think would also enjoy it. And feel free to tweet at me, at Monica Perez Show. And please, if you are listening to this, as soon as it drops, you can come join me live, talking to John Bush. It is uh, on October twelfth, twenty 2022, at 11 a.m. Pacific, on my YouTube channel, Monica Perez Show. And if you are listening to it a day late, you can catch me live with Ian Davis on Friday, October fourteenth, at 11 a.m., He's not going to be on YouTube. He's a little too hot to handle for that. But we'll be on my Rumble channel and Rockfin, and I think even on my Twitter, at Monica Perez Show.